I'm Mark Paul. This is my true story. We were gamblers. Damn good gamblers. We made a large bet on a filly named Winning Colors to win the Derby. A million dollar bet. But a female had won the Kentucky Derby only twice in 114 years. It's a driving finish. But we had made a tragic mistake. We unknowingly had made our bet with the Mexican cartel. Would they pay us or kill us? This is my story. And that's Mark Paul, the author who also goes by Miami. His book is The Greatest Gambling Story Ever Told, and I believe it. My name is Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My chat with Mark Paul is coming up next. If you follow the newsletter at CFO Bookshelf, you know that I like narrative nonfiction. Those kinds of books can inform, inspire, and entertain. And when you have all three of those, then in my opinion, you've got a special book. Mark Paul and his friend Dino in the book are what I call analytical gamblers. Mark's story includes a rich man who wanted to trade his chargers for horses also a horse trainer who acted like a CEO, a stall hand who we all enjoyed getting to know, and oh yes, the great horse named Winning Colors. Now, I know nothing about horse racing, so I also found the sections of the book about business and the economics of horse racing fascinating as well. I'm very thankful for Mark saying he'd be on the show, so let's get this teed up. Miami, I loved your book. It's called The Greatest Gambling Story Ever Told. It, I was shocked. I don't know why. I just thought this turned out to be, a, this is a sleeper of a book, and I didn't want it to end. And so just kudos to just a wonderful story, which, by the way, is true. Thank, thank you. It is, it's a true story. I was dying to tell it. It occurred in 1988. Um there were a few things I wanted to get done with, like the Statue of Limitations. <laughs> a, few, a few things like that I had to clear first, uh, but I was dying to tell it. Well, I, I think the, the hardest thing about doing an interview like this is we don't want to give away everything. We want to sell some books. Uh, so it's like, where do I begin? Where, where do I, what's the beginning? What's the middle? What's the end? So uh, we'll, we'll break this up into pieces. To enough to where people are going to want to still buy the book. And I just thought, let's start out with some of the key players. Now, by the way, you are the, the star in this book, but we're going to start with a guy named Eugene Klein. Who, who was Mr. Klein back in the 1980s? It all started because uh, my best friend, Dino Mateo, is a, an unbelievable horse gambler. He's one of those guys, one of the few guys on the planet who can make money gambling. And it's because he's not into drinking and womanizing and the like. He was the guy that would be at 3 a.m. pouring through charts and notes, uh, you know, figuring out, you know, angles. And we lived at the racetrack. We were 30 years old at the time. We weren't married. 
and we were semi, we had real jobs, um, but we were semi-professional gamblers. And one day there was a horse uh, that had just won a Phillies, a, uh, a race for Phillies, which is female only horses, a young two-year-old. And she was this big, gigantic racehorse named Winning Colors. And she was owned by Eugene Klein. Eugene Klein was a billionaire who had owned the Seattle uh, NBA team, the Sonics. Um, he had owned the San Diego Chargers. And right about this time, he was selling his interest in the San Diego Chargers and getting full-time invested in horse racing as only a billionaire can. And he was very upset about owning the football team because all the players were on coke. He just had a situation where he loaned his plane to a bunch of the play, uh, players and they actually loaded it full of cocaine and did a delivery of and, and sold cocaine illegally. He says, oh my God, they could have seized my plane. Who knows what? He was tired of the, uh, the all of the uh, agents trying to renegotiate the contracts. He says, that's it. I'm just going to deal with horses. So he had this filly, this two-year-old filly, who was racing against the other girl horses. The girls usually race against girls. And she won by like the length of the stretch. And my friend Dino and I heard this interview and they said, Mr. Klein, you own the San Diego Chargers and you also own this magnificent racehorse. If you could win the Super Bowl or you could win the Kentucky Derby, which would you take? And he said, in a split second, he said, oh, I would take the Kentucky Derby. At the time, it was, you know, 26 football teams. One of them wins every year. But in horse racing, there's 40,000 thoroughbreds born a year, and only one of them can win the Derby. Only one time when they're three years old, that's the only time they can run. And my buddy Dino and I knew that Eugene Klein had heart problems and, and health conditions. And we, my Dino looks at me and he says, Mark, do you think he might run this girl, this filly, against the boys, against the Colts, in the Derby next year? And he said, you know, he just might. He's got health problems, and he's a billionaire, and it's his dream. So we started shopping around, and I'll, I'll let you go on to your question, but that's how it all started, because of the billionaire owner who loved, wanted to win the Derby. And then I just want to add in, and you put this in the book, multiple occurrences, only three Phillies, only three in the history of the Kentucky Derby have ever won. In a hundred, it's happened three times in 190 years. Well, why is that? Um, it's a little like running fem uh, males against females. You typically, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't put, you know, Tom Brady against the girls on a football game or Hussein Bolt against the women. Although it's interesting in Europe, they run Philly, they run girls against boys a lot more successfully than they do here. It's really not done here, hardly ever. Is it muscles? Yeah, it's muscle mass, size, testosterone. Same thing, just like in humans. The, 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 the colts tend to be much bigger, like 200 pounds bigger than the, than the females. Although it's interesting, the, 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 the real star in this, in this book, in this true story, is the Philly winning colors. And the day of the race... She actually outweighed every colt in the race by 200 pounds. And all the male chauvinists oh. were saying, oh, you know, these, these wimpy little girls can't beat the colts. And I was like, you haven't seen this, this horse because she's going to get their ass. So without Mr. Klein, 
this story may not have gotten written because I mean he took he took a chance uh, on this horse, but before you can have a great horse you need a great trainer. And there's this guy named Wayne Lucas. Did I get the name right? Wayne Lucas. Wayne Lucas is the Bob Baffert of the day, which is interesting. They both have something in common. They both come from poor backgrounds as trainers and they started in the cheap quarter horse tracks, training, training thoroughbred, training a quarter horses for, you know, $1,200 purses. And Wayne Lucas became the absolute dominant trainer in all of America. But what was unique about him is he, he, you know, most of the trainers were just good old boys in jeans and boots. He was a CFO in horse racing. He wore literally $3,000 suits, impeccably dressed, had a private jet, had a, had a Skorsky helicopter, um, drove a Rolls Royce, ran his barn, like a CFO, and he did some unique things. For instance, most trainers only have like a string of horses at Santa Anita or Churchill Downs. He would run strings of horses in all the major tracks and fly them around by jet from race to race to racetrack. And then he would make everything standardized. For instance, like when the horse left his barn in Santa Anita to run in a stakes race at Churchill Downs in Kentucky, when he got to the barn at Churchill Downs, he would have the same hay, literally identical. It would be laid out in the same place, the pail, the feed bucket. Everything would be done the same time, the same way. So he would say, the horse won't even know where the hell he is. You know, just trying to eliminate things that could go wrong. I was going to say, just a little bit of a perfectionist, wasn't he? Yeah, he he was a nightmare to work for, apparently. Um like, for instance, most barns start about 5 a.m. It's pretty darn early, right? His started at 4.30 in the morning, and he wouldn't allow them to have a coffee pot because he didn't want them standing around the coffee pot. He wanted them working at 4.30 in the morning. He expected, I wrote down on my notes, he expected a phone call every day, not once a day, but twice a day. Uh, what, what was it? You may have to, to help me out here. 4 a.m., and 1 p.m. He wanted daily updates at 1 p.m. And then if there's an injury, he'd also would everything want a 24 call. hours, you know. And he, he was he actually he he got mad. He actually made his trainers take penmanship classes because he couldn't read their notes, and that would really piss him off. So he was a really he was a <laughs> but he, he he revolutionized racing. Uh, and you know, today we have these super trainers like Bob Baffert and, and, you know, these other big trainers who have national strings of horses, but it really wasn't done back then. 18 hour work days again, under, under Wayne Lucas, uh, spotless barns. Uh, I, I think these horses are probably more pampered than say Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I've owned 46 horses. My wife only knows about 18 of them that I've owned. Uh, but my horses, like, they actually have their own chiropractors. <laughs> they are really well cared for. Um, they, they, they're bathed and groomed and taken care of, particularly at the high level of these racetracks. Um, I always say, yeah, right, okay, let me, let me release my horses into the wild with the coyotes and, and let's see how long they last. Believe me, my horses are really well taken care of. And, and the vast majority of the people that work at the racetrack really love their horses. 
We don't get into this game to make money. Most of us lose our asses owning horses, racing horses. Trainers don't really make much money. It's really because we love horses. As I was reading your book, my first thought was, I've got to interview this author. And one of the reasons I wanted to be able to interview you was to say thank you for including another character in the book. His name is Luis. And probably Luis was making uh, anywhere from 6 to $7 an hour. I, I have in my notes six twenty-five an hour. Tell me why you think I that I believe Luis is such a special person in this book. Well, we'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. That was really important to me to write about the backstretch workers because, you know, we all show up whether we're the, you know, the rich owners and we show up in our coats and ties and the ladies in hats and, you know, at 1230 and order a cocktail and we think we're the backbone of horse racing. But these horses need to be cared for 365 days a year. And even if they're in New Jersey or, you know, New York and it's cold, they still need to be fed and exercised and taken care of literally every single day. And it falls on the on the backs, particularly in California, but really all the, over the United States, mostly in the Latin population. They seem to have an affinity for horses. Most And most of the people, like on the backstretch, you know, the horses travel around. They may go from Santa Anita in L.A., and then they go to Del Mar, uh, and then maybe they go to Kentucky. They go to other racetracks. These people are very nomadic. They go for four months and then they travel with the horses to the next place. And, and their families travel as a unit. So the kids travel, the, the mothers travel, you know, the grooms, the, the jockeys. It's a real community back there. And they work so hard for so little money. And a guy like Luis literally takes care of this horse every single day of his life. And then there's these incongruities because you have horses that are worth $10 million that are cared for by people making, you know, today's dollars, you know, $14 an hour. The horse travels in private jets and has his own crew and people to take care of him. These people barely have enough money, you know, to, to have dinner at night. So you, you really have to respect them. But what's great in my my story, which is a true story, is that um, you mentioned at the beginning, we don't want to, you know, spoiler alert, give with the story. I'm really don't worry about that because the, as you know, from reading the book, the excitement of this story isn't really about who wins the Kentucky Derby. The excitement kind of begins after the Kentucky Derby when the gamblers, which we'll talk about, wind up having to cash their bet that they wind up unknowingly made their bet with the Mexican cartel. 
So I, I don't mind mentioning that this guy, Luis, had wound up betting the horse at 100 to 1 odds. Um, actually, was it yeah, 100 to 1 odds before she had ever run two races in her lifetime. So this was a potential life-changing score for the grooms. You know, imagine a guy that makes $6 an hour winning $200,000 or having the chance to win $200,000 on his horse. It, it makes me wonder, because in the book, and I'm assuming you interviewed him, in the book, there's a, you talk about the shoebox that he pulls out <laughs> that takes the money out to do some investing, as in gambling. And it made me wonder, I wonder if his wife knows about she this. She did not. So I... She did she not. Did I not. was getting a little nervous, but she did not. He, he had a good payout at the end. <laughs> well, let, so let's two more characters, and we're going to leave one out. We're, we're going to talk about Big Bernie at the end. Well, what what an interesting individual! And by the way, it sounds like you needed that relationship, Big Bernie. But let's talk about you, Miami, and and Dino. Now you already set the stage a little bit, but when did you two? You two were friends. Well, when did you two start? Horse uh, gambling. When did you all start doing that? We started horse gambling. He had grown up with his family was involved with it at the time he was like five. Um, I went to the track for the first time when I was about 14. And my first thought was, oh, my God, this is the greatest game in the world. I was absolutely hooked. Um, it is horse racing is is not like any other gambling. It's not because. It's like poker in one way, in that you're not betting against the house. Like at a poker table, the house just gets a cut of how much is in the in the pot. The race racing is like that too, with paramutual wagering. You're not betting against the track. You're betting against all the other gamblers that are there. So you have to be better than the other gamblers to win money. So there is a there is a chance to win. It's not easy, but there's a chance to to. There are winning uh, poker players, and there are winning horse players for that reason. Um, and then the, a bunch of other great things. You're outdoors. I mean, I hate being stuck indoors. And you go to the racetrack, you have these 1,200-pound beautiful animals running at 40 miles an hour with 90-pound jockeys on their back and silks. And there's no place on earth like it. And one thing that's amazing about horse racing you know, when you go to the racetrack, a big race, like maybe you would go in London, okay, or anywhere, you have every segment of society at the racetrack. In the owner's box, you literally have the Queen of England. You have the richest people in the world, billionaires and millionaires that own the racehorses. And, but then at the lowest level in the grandstand, you have people that are living on welfare going to the track every day because they love racing and the excitement of it. I don't know another sport that has, you know, that dichotomy of all of the, everybody, every social economic level at the racetrack. And back in the 80s, when I, at the height of the story, is in some ways the greatest times of racing. Racing is doing great today because you're able to bet from your home, from your phone, and there's the pools and lots of money is being gambled, which is what drives drives the the industry but unfortunately it lot not a lot of people go to the track now except for the big days you know triple crown you know kentucky derby belmont breeders cup they're there for those races but it's just so amazing so i, I started going when i was 14 
you needed to be um, 21 to gamble. I was big and tall, so I would sneak into the racetrack. I would actually give a bum a $2 mutual ticket in order to pretend to be my father uh, so I could get into the track. We would wear suits and ties when we were 15, 16, so that we would look 20, so that we could bet. It was a crazy time. It's still the greatest game in the world. The big bet that you guys made, so you go down into Mexico, you could have gone to Vegas, but you had better odds in, in Mexico. We're talking dangerous here. We're talking life and death, potentially. Looking back, would you have done anything differently? And you may need to set this. You may need to set this up because I'm, I, I'm making, I'm making some assumptions. Well, yeah, there's a thing. There's a thing which exists today. You know, sports gambling is just blowing up nationally. It's become legal in the last two years. And there's a huge part of sports gambling. It's actually the greatest part of sports gambling. It's called futures book betting. So, like right now, you can bet on. You know, we've had three games in the NBA, but you can go right now and bet on the Nets or the Lakers or Dallas or whoever you think is going to win uh, to, to win the, the Super Bowl or to win the NBA championship. Um, you can bet on all these things six months, nine months in advance. But if your team is not in the Super Bowl, you don't get your money back. But because of that, the odds are really big. So if you're betting on the Super Bowl six months before you know the, the first kickoff, you might be able to get a team that, you know, you might get – the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who go off the day of the of the the game might be, you know, odds on favorites. You might be able to get them at 10 or 20 or I had a bet this year, for instance, on the Cardinals that to win at 35 to 1. I bet them early in the season, I got 35 to 1. I couldn't get 35 to 1 now. But horse racing is unique because even today there's 20,000 horses bred a year and only one of them can win the Derby. So you may be able to get odds on a derby horse at not 10 to 1. You might get them at 100 to 1 or 200 to 1 or more. Um, so we wound up believing in this filly. We bet on her uh, almost a year in advance. We bet on her uh, long before she became she – she wound up getting into the Kentucky Derby, and she went off the second favorite. She went off basically at 3 to 1 the day of the Derby. But we had better at 50 to one because we had shopped all around for her odds about seven months before actually. So we shopped around and she was 12 to one in Las Vegas. And my buddy is a professional gambler and she was 12 to one in Vegas. And he said, he found out that she was 50 to one in a little rinky dinky racetrack in freaking Tijuana, Mexico. But when he found out she was 50 to one, he was like, this is a chance of a lifetime. The next sound you heard, there's tires screaming out of there to go bet as much as he could put together on her at 50 to one, seven months before the race. But, I, but. but yeah, the problem is this. So, you know, we thought, well, she probably won't win. Who knows? You know, it's a long shot. Three, three, uh, Phillies have won, beaten the Colts in 180 years. Um, but as she continued to keep winning races, eventually they put her against the boys for the first time in the Santa Anita Derby, which is one month before the Kentucky Derby. So they were going to test her against Colts to see if she you know, could 
could could muster up the courage and speed to beat the boys. And of course, is that is that California? Is that California? It was in California at Santa Anita, and there was a tremendous amount of sexism in horse racing. You know, all the way there. Keep the girls with the girls. The girls can't beat the boys. They're not tough enough. They're not big enough. You're wasting your time. Um, so she went against the boys in the Santa Anita Derby, and she won by nine and a half lengths, pulling away, just crushed them, kicked their ass. And so we started thinking, oh, my God, we actually could win this damn bet. So we started really studying what was going on in Caliente because we were actually worried that maybe they wouldn't pay us because we had bet 5000 on her to win 250000 But I ran into a buddy of mine at the track named Big Bernie. And Big Bernie had won a $200,000 pick six a few months earlier. Uh, so he had gone in, he had actually gone in and bet $20,000 to win on her at 50 to one. So he had a million dollars riding on her. And we were hearing not good things about this little rinky-dink track. First of all, we heard that they would never pay us. It would be cheaper to kill us than to pay us. <laughs> or for instance, maybe they would pay us and then rob us on the parking lot or on the drive home. Um, so then we found out that the owner of the racetrack, that, well, the racetrack might be going to bankruptcy because it was doing poorly. And then we found out something worse. The, there was a famous journalist in Tijuana. He's kind of like the Dear Abby of journalists. He read a, a column yeah. that everybody read. Sports fans read it and the women right. read it. It was about parties and, and like Entertainment Tonight type of show. And the most famous person in all of Tijuana um, is the guy that owned the racetrack. And he was alleged to be deeply involved with the Ariel Felix Filiano drug cartel down there. And we heard that, we're like, oh shit. So let me get this right. We made our bet with a bankrupt racetrack in a Tijuana that's owned by a guy in the Mexican cartel. What the hell could go wrong here, right? So we started really, really fearing for our lives the day of the race, when you know she gets into the derby, the day of the race, I honestly, I don't know if I was more afraid that she would lose or that she would win and we would have to go to Tijuana and collect $1,250,000 in cash. And I'm talking 1988 dollars. So that's probably $5 million today, right? So it was a scary story. And you asked me, would I do anything different? Yeah, <laughs> there's a quote. I don't. I forget who wrote the quote, but he's, it's, it's it's the perfect quote for this book, which is that adventures are seldom enjoyable during the adventure. I I, I hear you. Didn't you and Dino watch the race down at that racetrack, or did you watch it elsewhere? We did in a day that will live in infamy. Um, we drove down. We we didn't. We were worried about getting paid. And this is a dirty little dinky racetrack. It was funny. At one time in the 1930s, it was named Agua Caliente. It was actually a beautiful, magnificent racetrack. It was it was Las Vegas, be, literally before Las Vegas existed. 
And it, it had a beautiful old soaring facility with, they used to have parties in a hotel and it was like great Gatsby-esque, but it had fallen out of favor. Um, and we were thinking, well, if we're going to go down there and we have to collect a million two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, probably not good to go down on a Tuesday if she wins when nobody's there and it's just us and you know the cartel guys. Wouldn't it be better to go down the day of the Derby where we're surrounded by, you know, maybe ten thousand people or something watching the race there? Right. So I'll never forget this. We we drove down to Agua Caliente in friggin' Tijuana, and we're watching the race under a little teeny black and white television 3,000 miles away, surrounded by mariachi bands and a hell of a lot of margaritas and a lot of drinking and a lot of women of the night in a crazy-ass scene, right? And we're watching on this little television screaming at winning colors to win this race and I'll never forget that moment as long as I live. Hey, I want to talk a little bit just about the economics of horse racing. So these owners, and we may have said this a few minutes ago, but the owners, now again, let's go back to 1988. I read where $5 million per animal, that is a, that's a lot of dollars for a horse. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, horse racing is like a giant pyramid, and all of the money is only at the top of the pyramid. Um, most horses don't earn their keep; they're very difficult to um, uh, winning. So winning it's a hobby colors, for some people. A filly was purchased for five hundred and fifty thousand um, be, before she ever ran a race, and that's a lot of money for a filly because. If a horse is successful and should win a big race like the Derby, um, a colt can be bred 200 times a year. It may be $30,000, dollars $50,000 per mare. So there's tremendous, and that's why when you hear about, you know, American Pharaoh and you hear about these big horses being syndicated and sold for $60 million, 100% of the time they'll be males because they can be bred 200 times a year for big money. Whereas a female, a mare can only drop one uh, offspring per season. So she's still valuable as a racehorse, and she's still valuable as a broodmare, but not the economics are not the same. Um, most, the way racing works is the purses, you know, they vary by what level racetrack you're in. It would be like, you know, Major League Baseball versus, you know, the, the lower divisions. Uh, or and a stakes race might have a purse of a hundred, two hundred thousand, even a million dollars. But an average race, like out of Santa Anita today, the purse would probably be around forty thousand dollars. Now, of that forty thousand dollars, the winner will get sixty percent, so get about twenty-four thousand. The second place horse gets twenty percent, so they get about eight thousand. The third place horse would get ten percent, or about four thousand, and on down. So, but that's at a major racetrack like Santa Anita. And if we were to go to little teeny, you know, rinky racetracks, even up in, in San Francisco or the small racetracks that they have in Louisiana or Florida, you know, you might have purses 
that the, you know the racetrack purses might only be eighteen hundred dollars a race, and incidentally, it's it's a lot harder. You know, when you hear about bad things or bad care being taken care of horses, and it's much more likely to happen at a rinky-dink racetrack with where it's very difficult for anybody to make any money. It's harder for them. I'm not justifying, but harder for them to spend the money for the upkeep on their horses. It's also, if you ever hear about like larceny and betting or the like, it's really hard to get Tom Brady to throw a, to, you know, to, to give Tom Brady enough money to throw a football game in the NFL when he's making, you know, $40 million a year with endorsements. But it's a lot easier to get a, a college basketball player who's living in a dorm, you know, doesn't have any money to eat, get him to throw a game. Well, it's a lot, the same thing applies in horse racing. If you have a purse that's only $1,200, and the winner of it gets only, you know, $660, you can make more money betting on that race than you can winning that race. By that, for I don't, so I don't really think there's really a lot of larceny going on at Santa Anita or Churchill Downs or a major racetrack like that. So Eugene Klein, I think it's fair to say he did pretty well. Now in your book, you mentioned he was shelling out upwards to $300,000 per a month and <laughs> just trainer fees a month yeah. in trainer fees. And that's not even counting real estate costs uh, of varying kinds. So the, the money going out is a lot. Is it fair to say that he was profitable uh, during his time as an owner? I've heard that he was not, that he, that's he amazing. Really well, and even he was, was not, particularly profitable. It's it's very, very difficult to make money as a as a horse owner uh, in this game. Really, 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 really difficult. I would say that maybe 5% of the owners make money. So it's definitely a rich person's sport. Yeah, there's something pretty cool going on today, though, which is all these horse syndications. Um, I do most of my horse investing, which I'm going to use the term lightly, um, with a group called Eclipse now. Uh, and what they do is you can get a group of maybe 20 people get together and buy one racehorse. And there's even an interesting thing called now called MyRacehorse.com. I don't go into them, but they you can buy a fractional interest in a racehorse for like $160. And they actually won the Kentucky Derby three years ago. The, the, so this is like the mutual fund of, of horse ownership. Yeah, and it makes so it's, it makes so much more sense to own a part of a horse. First of all, if you go to the track and your horse wins, do you want to be alone in the winner's circle? No, you want to be there with your buddies and your everybody. Let's go to the bar and let's have a drink. Let's celebrate. Or if you lose, you want to go to the, the bar again with your buddies and say, oh, I can't believe it. You know, we, you know, we ran last. It's much better. So I love right now, I, I probably own an average 25 to 5% of a racehorse. It's just enough for me to act like I'm a big shot, but it doesn't really cost an exorbitant amount of money. I want to do an epilogue. I want to do an epilogue, if that's sure. okay, sir. So Miami, uh, the epilogue, let's, we're, we're going to save you for last. Let's start with a big Bernie. And there was basically an epilogue for Big Bernie. Isn't, isn't it Big Bernie who got the yeah, hotel? Yeah, I lost, I lost track that? of Big Bernie, but he, he stayed in Mexico and became a hotel owner down there. 
And he became really a pretty, I guess, a guy with a million dollars down there could do pretty well. And got married to a, a pretty little Latin woman and uh, did really, really well. Um, I hear that he still comes up to L.A., but I haven't seen him in decades now. I I liked I liked him. He was a good. I mean, he 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 needed you, and I think you and Dino needed. Yeah, him. he was a he was a great. He was just a, a great great guy who I'm so glad because you know he won he won you know ten times more money than I did, and I'm I'm glad he did. Let's talk now. I, I I've already looked this up, but let's talk a little bit about winning colors. Did you follow the career? Now, obviously, the racing career. Only lasted maybe another year. Yeah, she or only two had one after, more. I think one more year. Um, um, if you know, if you want to, you could, if they go to my website, um, I have a lot of information there, and including I have links there to all her races. And the funny thing, her greatest race was actually the following year as a four-year-old. Um, she ran in the Breeders' Cup Distaff, which is the championship for fillies. And she raced one of the greatest mares of all time named Personal Ensign. And they hooked up at the top of the stretch in a duel that was maybe the most exciting race I've ever seen. And that's a race to see. So she she went on and she did really well. She wasn't a great um, a mare as far as what she dropped as, as her offspring. She never really had any too many great champions that came out of her, unfortunately. She was a better racehorse than a mother. How about the trainer, Wayne Lucas? Yeah, he's still training horses. I, I think he's 92 years old right now. He still is handsome. He's still, he's the most, to this day, the most well-dressed man I've ever seen on the planet. I mean, handsome and fit. He still rides horses out to see his horses train. He doesn't train a lot of horses. Um, and he's still around in, you know, not, He's had, a, he's had an amazing career and deserves all the accolades. And then your betting partner, Dino? Dino and I are still good friends. Um, Dino Dino is much smarter than me, which was apparent in the movie. Uh, Dino was the brains of the operation. I just basically drove the getaway car. Um, Dino, it's not his real name. He doesn't really want his name used for um, the IRS or for the cartel. <laughs> he's, he's a lot lot smarter than Miami, that's for sure. Uh, but he's still to this day one of the not or maybe the best the best gambler I've ever met. He he just has this unique skill, um, and I think it's again because he doesn't get caught up in the drinking and the partying. He's an, he's he's an analyst who just happens to like gambling and he only bets on certain things <laughs> mostly future books and how about the girlfriend of the protagonist that i'm talking to well in the book um miami's girlfriend again not her real name in the book her name is ava uh ava and i did wind up getting married and we've been married now for 30 years um and we have um two great sons both who are indirectly involved in uh, legal gambling. <laughs> One is a bond trader on Wall Street. Uh, he talk about really gambling. He, he can trade a billion dollars a day. And my other son and I started a, a new company called Sports Gambling Guides, and we're we in the legal sports gambling business. So it's it's a fun business. I'm still very involved, I guess, indirectly now with 
racing. I've owned 40 interests in 46 racehorses. Um, of the 46, I've had three of them that were really good. Really good. That were that won grade one races and the like. Um, so, you know, it's been a fun story. I, I was in commercial real estate then. I still am, but I'm kind of retired from that now. Mark, I know you like Michael Lewis. Is there a Moneyball framework for horse betting? Well, first of all, it's interesting thing going on today in horse racing is that there's these, literally there's these about 40% of the amount bets called the handle that's bet into the racetrack pools comes from these computer syndicates that are put together like super brain computers and analyze not only the past performances, but even more importantly, what is bet in the pools. So if they see an opportunity, they see like they see a horse who's 10 to 1 and a horse is 5 to 1, and you, you, you put them together and exact it or run 1 2. And if that bet should be paying um, $200 for $2, and they see it's paying $300, at the last second, their computer programs will automatically bet into the pools. Um, and there's nothing, a lot of these big syndicates get are getting rebates from the company. Some of the companies will say, all right, we'll give you, a, you as long as you bet more than a million dollars a month, we'll give you an 8% rebate on your money. So there's a lot, there are people that are betting and beating the horse races, but it's not really, you know, some guy with a cigar stuck in the side of his mouth who's been watching races for 30 years, you know, like me, that would likely go out and, and, and make, you know, make a living. And it's, it's, it's really more analytical. It's more a computer generator for people that are making money. But for people like me that love racing, um, you know, you, you don't have to bet so much at horse racing to enjoy it. First of all, there's only nine races a day. Okay. You could go to Las Vegas and sit at a blackjack table and you could bet, I don't know, you know, a hundred bets in an hour. You have a hundred chances to lose your money, right? When horse racing, at least there's only you know, there's 30 minutes between races. So, you, you know, you're probably not going to get too, you know, too beat up on it. And if you're reasonably uh, have s some brains about it, maybe it won't win, but you, you shouldn't get killed at it. We ask every guest about their favorite books. I am pretty certain that I know what your favorite book is. So what is it? And then what else do you like these days? I, I'm an audiobook book junkie. I love podcasts and I love audiobooks because I, I work all day still and I'm too tired <laughs> with my eyes, but I still love to consume this and I like to walk. So I listen to books. My favorite book and my favorite author, without question, and my favorite movie is Seabiscuit by Laura Hillebrand. If you haven't read Seabiscuit, and by the way, the only thing, the book is incredible. The audiobook is spectacular, and the movie is really, really enjoyable. So I love that. Um, I have a weakness as a reader. I can only read nonfiction. I, I don't understand why, but I, I, just, I just can't. I just can't invest 20 hours reading a book and go, wow, what a great story, but none of the damn thing is true. Somebody made it up. I just I don't have a good, <laughs> I just can't do that. So I read nonfiction. Uh, we talked a moment, uh, Mark, at the start. I absolutely love narrative nonfiction. 
I like I like reading nonfiction that when I'm in it, I don't even know it's that I'm not reading. You know, it has to read like a novel to me. I have to love and be involved and care about the characters. So I can't read or listen to things that are documentary style. I need things that are uh, narrative style. So of that, I read a great book that I really loved and turned my older son onto. It's called Beneath the Scarlet Sky, Beneath the Scarlet Sky by Mark Sullivan. It's a great story uh, about a young man who was in the Italian resistance during uh, World War II. Um, I love, my two favorite authors are uh, Ben Mesrich, uh, who recently just released a book called The Antisocial Network about um, uh, all the, the money that's going into GameStop and the like. He also wrote 21, the story about the MIT players. That, that's my kind of book. You know, mo you know Molly's Game, 21, but in the other one, I love anything written by Michael Lewis. I absolutely love. Those are all my favorite types of authors. And that's 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 the genre of my book. Mark, the, the trailer is outstanding. We played it during the intro. Sounds like that's really helped with your book sales. When I die and go to heaven and people say, What are the most what are you the most proud of? You know, after my wife and my children, I'll say my fifty-seven second uh, uh, <clears throat> book trailer. Not a movie trailer, but a book trailer. I did that myself uh, about the story. Uh, you, you can find it on YouTube with a like, The Greatest Gambling Story Ever Told. Um, it's 57 seconds, and it really teases the book really, really well. And, you know, I, I, I self-published this with a paid publisher who did a great job for me. I've sold nearly 50,000 copies, which is pretty good for a self-published author. But that that little video clip, has 300,000 downloads, so which is pretty cool. So again, Mark, markpaulauthor.com, and you can find it on, on, on the website. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Mark, Miami, Paul, that that was outstanding. I want to read one of the reviews from Audible. And I did not know until this interview, I should have known that there's a, a an audio book to this. I read the Kindle version. So I, I looked up the book on Audible, and this is a great review. It's by James Cowan. James, you are now famous. He says, this has got to be a movie. I love this book and the exciting way it drew me in. It is such a great story that could easily be made into a very well done movie. Absolutely. I would go so far to say it's too late for it to be a 60 minutes segment, but it'd be a great Netflix docuseries. Again, the name of the book is The Greatest Gambling Story Ever Told by Mark Paul. And again, I recommend it. And again, I can't thank Mark enough. It's I can't begin to explain what it means to someone who does interviews, they read a book, and then they wonder, I wonder if we can get the author on. Our hit rate is about 80 to 82% of people saying, yes, I'll be on. But I don't take that for granted. And when Mark said yes, he made my day because I just thought this is such a cool story. Mark Paul, the author, the book, The Greatest Gambling Story 
ever told. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. Until next time. Thank you.